Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast features Danielle Ecuyer. Danielle started her career as an equities research analyst in the 1980s and 90s, when things were a little bit different to what they are today, but there are many similarities. We talk about companies that stand the test of time, how Danny knew that the GFC was coming and her broker wouldn't follow her instructions, so what she did next was quite interesting. We also talk about her transition to becoming a full-time private investor. Finally, we talk about you know some of Danny's better investments over time, some of her worst investments and what she's learned, and why she decided in 2020 to begin writing two books called Shareplicity. Danielle is a great resource and someone that you can follow on Twitter with the handle at au underscore Shareplicity. She's written two books, both of which you'll find in the show notes below, where you can also get the first chapter for free. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast featuring Danielle Ecuyer. Hi, Danny. Thanks for taking some time to join me on the Australian Investors Podcast. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Wonderful to be here and looking forward to chatting, Owen. Yeah. Um, we sometimes get authors on the on the program, but it's not often that we get two-time authors <laughs> on the program. So we're delighted and I'm delighted to be able to share a bit of your story and also introduce people to the books, which I think are great because um, we were just chatting off air. They actually go that extra step in terms of it's not just, you know, go and invest in this or look for high quality companies and and just that's all you've got to do. And then everyone sounds like, yep, that sounds great. How? Um, These books actually teach you how and teach you what to look for. And and they're great. So you'll find all the links to Danny's books in the show notes. If you are interested in investing, um, please, please take a look. And um, I think you can get the the first chapter for free on the Shareplicity website, right? Yes, absolutely. Both both um, books, you can get the first chapter free download to give you a taste of what's ahead. Yeah, wonderful. Um, I thought something that would be really interesting, and this is what I like to do with all of the longer form podcasts, Danny, is I like to try and learn a bit more about you. So I know you've got a, a quite an accomplished career in investment markets, and then you kind of took a backward step, not a sideways step, probably a forward step in many regards to become a private investor um, before becoming an author. Can you take us back to um, the younger days? Um, a younger Danny, were you influenced by money, finance or investing from an early age? And if so, who are the people around you that taught you about money and the books and the things that you were kind of mentored by? That's a really good question because you're probably going to get an answer that you don't expect. Mm. Um Through circumstances, um, I was brought up by my mother because basically my dad died when I was very young in a tragic accident in Parisha. Mm. He was, um, he he needs a bit of credit. He was uh, a Swiss 
Olympic skier for the B team who wanted to become a pilot. He was an engineer and decided he'd move to Australia because he thought he could become a pilot in the Australian Air Force more quickly than Switzerland. Anyway, so the long and the short of the story was he was an entrepreneur. He was an amazing skier. Um, Their relationship didn't work out and he tragically died after mum got divorced from him. Why I say all of this was that mummy had invested her money through another friend of hers uh, into Poseidon, a very, very famous stock for being the most incredible Mm. uh, boom bust scenario where so many people lost so much money. So when you talk about influences, there was a really visceral feeling of watching your mother pretty much have a nervous breakdown when all her savings disappeared uh, because the person who was a stockbroker who was a friend would not listen to her and sell the stock. So really my relationship with money, my anxiety over money, my need for financial independence is not framed by any tutoring. It's actually framed out of a need to learn to take control and uh, own this space because I had watched my mother struggle bringing me up. And so when I was in a position to start earning money, um, to potentially pursue a career, which I didn't really know very much about, Hmm. but was in this so-called stockbroking that it was doing really well in the, in the mid-80s, I thought, wow, this could be potentially good because it could potentially give me what I lacked as a child, which was financial security. So I had no mentoring. I had nothing except just learning through my own experience, which was basically at 14 years and nine months, I went out and I got a job, which was working as a sales assistant, which I then did on and off. Uh, through university um, until I actually left uni. So it's all real life experience. Yeah, right. So, right. So did you, did you know the pressure that your mother was under? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah could yeah. you, and you could feel it. So what was, this is a kind of uh, a digression somewhat, but what was your relationship with money? So did you think, when you when you thought about the idea of having to save and budget and those types of things, um, even subconsciously, did, were you did you, did that bring up anxiety for you? No, not the saving part. I was really lucky. I had two very strong female figures in my life. One was my mother, who was a very strong woman, um, but also too suffered because she was trying to bring up a, a daughter. She didn't finish, didn't get to year twelve because. They just kind of, she wanted to go and live life and, dare I say, be a secretary yep. in the 19, late 50s, 60s. And um, so her jobs were always going to be pegged, even though she was very a very bright woman. Um, but she had a very fractured relationship with money because she was always worried where the next paycheck was, how she was going to put me through school, et cetera. So um, she was fortunate. She got a couple of inheritance, which basically saved our bacon over, over that period. The other woman who was amazing was my godmother. And she never married, but she had this great thing. And I use this, always use it as an example when it comes to investing. She didn't have a lot of money, but she had a lot of class. She was one classy lady. And she always said to me, she said, Danny, even if you don't have a lot of money, the one thing you should always buy is a quality belt quality shoes and a quality handbag. So it doesn't matter what you're wearing, you can always look really smart. And so her concept of quality has very much 
um, keeps coming back and back and back in terms of durability, in terms of length of going the distance. If you buy something that's great quality, it still looks fabulous after 20 years. And the principle almost applies to buying great companies. And it's interesting because they're not the typical answers that probably some people would expect. I have friends who, um, as women, are involved in managing the investments for the family. And I say, well, how did you get involved? And she said, oh, well, my grandfather was really keen that I understood investing and he started to explain shares and told me what he owned and I learned it that way. Mine is literally by osmosis that it's become this incredible journey over the last three decades, three decades plus, dare I say. (laughs) (laughs) So you went on to study uh, commerce at UNSW, I believe. Um, What, 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 how, what was the next step for you once you studied, um, Where did you want to go and work? What job did you get? And how was that experience? We were really lucky because um, the commerce decision was because I flunked out of art at school. So I didn't get into law because everybody at that stage was doing commerce law. And so I go, okay, well, I'll just do the commerce part. (laughs) (laughs) And it was a really good, well-rounded degree. So you got everything from marketing to economics to accounting. So you came out hopefully with some knowledge that equipped you for business. At that point in time, we were really lucky because a whole lot of jobs had been lined up through multinationals. I'd already decided that I really wasn't a person to go into the multinational sausage machine. I'm a bit too... I don't know, rebellious or pushback. Uh, and I was very lucky to be offered a job in a stockbroking firm that was about to go from a private partnership to being uh, taken over by a company called BZW. It was out of the Big Bang in London where you had the stockbrokers, the jobbers and the market makers all came together to become an integrated what became investment banks. Um, and it was Barclays to Zoot Wed, which most people have no idea, but everybody's heard of Barclays. Mm. So Barclays used to have that whole stockbroking arm. We were taken over and that's when I became an analyst for the next four and a half years doing building materials and transport stocks as well as Goodman Field Awati. Can I just ask you a question? You said you said there was jobbers. Did you say jobbers? Yeah. What, what's a jobber? Good question. I have to remind myself what it was. So you basically had... The parts of the transaction where you had the, the stockbrokers that did the research and took the orders and then the jobbers, there, there was the, the intermediary between the, they might have been the marketplace and then you transacted on the market. I, I can't, isn't that terrible? I actually can't remember. But it's the three processes of the chain that came together. Um, to create, I mean, this is this is literally um, just as everything was starting to go fully electronic. So in the old days, those great old photos, I put one up on um, my Instagram account of a friend of mine who was on the floor of the ASX with all the chalkies. The chalkies, yeah. Yeah, and so it's an old mate of mine. I didn't realise when I posted it that Rodney Adler is standing behind him. <laughs> Somebody else pointed out, it's going, oh, there's our old mate and, oh, all those great ones back in the 80s. And so basically that was part of the, that was part of the curve when you started a stockbroking firm that actually threw me down onto the ASX trading floor and said, you sit in this little pit and you're meant to answer the phone. And, of course, I was so green I had no idea. I think I lasted 10 minutes, Owen, before they said, don't worry, we're going to put you in the research department. We think you'll be better there. <laughs> and I was promptly taken away because it's like, 
phones going, orders coming down to the floor, people screaming it out to the chalkies, what's the bid, what's the offer, I want this many BHP or Northbrokes or whatever. So they were the, that's, that's you know, that's the old stuff, which uh, sadly all, our generation, my generation were part of and remember really well. Mm. So you moved into the research team and you were covering building supplies and what else? Building materials and transport. Building materials and transport. How was that? Did you like that? What, what kind of companies were you covering? I think you told me a story on the phone the other day. Uh, well, basically, it's it's it, it's Boral. It was uh, James Hardy, uh, Pioneer Concrete, which no longer exists, um, Brambles, TNT, which doesn't exist, which had AWAS, which was the aircraft leasing mm-hmm. between um, News or ANSAT um, and TNT, and Main Nicholas, which has also been gobbled up. So you basically had to, you know, analyse companies, you know what it's all about, and mm. provide the research for the institutional advisors who then speak to the AMPs, legal in general, and also the analysts used to interface with the fund managers as well at that mm. stage. Did, did you enjoy researching those companies? I don't know. Do you find cement inter- interesting? Not really. <laughs> Aggregates? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we had a great junket over to America and Europe. <laughs> I remember you said that there was a, I remember a story you told me um, the other day, and I think I remember it correctly because the, one of the reasons I think I remember it is because you said you went with a guy uh, to the US, I think, on a tour, mm-hmm. and his name was Owen. And I, yep. I, I think, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah great name. Um, what, what, can, you, can you relieve that story for myself and listeners? So basically, Owen, who I think has just written a great piece, he's an amazing analyst um, for IEFA, uh, which is the um, organisation that analyses energy and finance together. Um, he decided that we would take a number of institutional investors on a building materials trip through the US because this is when Australian companies, uh, CSR, Boral, Pioneer Concrete, Monier uh, mm-hmm. Roof Tiles, which has been gobbled yep. up since, And we basically had this fabulous junket in the 80s and we started in San Francisco and flew to Florida. Um, We went to Disney World because I think, was it CSR or Pioneer Concrete? I can't remember, supplied all the concrete. Um, We ended up in Pensacola by accident because the plane broke down. And basically we went out and we saw James Hardy's new fibre cement production facilities um, in Vegas. And when you think about it, like Hardy's at that stage was transitioning. Obviously, they had that huge asbestos problem Mm. and they've got this amazing new product, fibre cement board. So we went and saw the facilities and you kind of look at the results that came out yesterday and they're still killing it. Mm. Um, So some of the other companies, as we know, Boral, you know, Seven's trying to get, you know, a chunk of that and take control of it. And it was really to show investors that it's not that easy for Australian companies to actually invest overseas. There's a very, very checkered history Mm. um, because Australia is quite an insulated market, as you know, with a lot of oligopolies. And a lot of companies think that they can replicate the success overseas, but very few have actually achieved it. Mm. You, you actually had another remark or kind of takeaway that from that trip. I think you said the other day that um, when you and I think it was when you and Owen returned, he said, oh, we've, now we've got to model each of these, these plants so we can get a valuation in a spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. And, I, yeah, your, your feedback on, on that wasn't um, obliging, shall we say. 
Well, I guess he was an amazing analyst and a re- incredible number cruncher, a great eye for detail. So he was one of the first people to model BHP, okay, Pure, really, really model. So when I talk about these things, people have to understand that that whole concept of producing thousand-line um, Excel spreadsheets, right, on, the, on, the, on a company's numbers had mm. never existed before. Research was like, oh, yeah, good company. It's been around forever. You know, pick a number out of the air. So <laughs> literally was a transition to analysts ripping apart um, companies. And Owen was in- incredible, and he really led the research team on that front. There were other very good analysts there too, like amazing ones, and a lot of them are still in the industry. But I always had this thing when when Owen would say to me, um, can you calculate, you know, the gross margin on the brick factory in Augusta, Georgia? Because we went to Augusta, didn't get to see the golf course, sadly. Um, <laughs> I saw the brick factory and it's very wet and muddy around there. Um, then you'll have a better idea of the company. Now, I probably am not as an investor as well suited to doing that type of analysis, because to me, that was never going to ind- indicate to me whether Boral was going to be a great company or not. It may indicate that it's a good or a bad factory. Mm. It may indicate that they have potentially manufacturing problems, but was it going to really make the culture of the company, make it the best building materials company? And I've always had a little bit of an issue when it comes to retail investors trying to replicate or reinvent the wheel when you've got other analysts already doing that work for you. Mm. If that makes sense, yeah. Because I don't, I don't see the point of retail investors sitting there, unless you particularly want to rip apart a balance sheet and profit and loss. As a retail investor, you're never going to have as much access to management as the research analysts at an institutional firm. So, whether you agree or disagree with what they're doing, at a certain level, you can at least trust the historical analysis of the numbers is Mm. what I'm saying. And if that's the premise that you start with, then I don't have a problem with that because that's the way when you move from equity analyst to being an institutional sales, by definition, you have to do that because you have to assess what is being fed to you from the research department and wadges of it, like piles and piles of research every day, particularly when you moved into emerging markets like I did, and you don't cover one market, you cover three markets. So by definition, you have to be able to filter all that information quite quickly, assess it, and provide hopefully an informed comment to your institutional investor about whether it's a buy, sell, or a hold, or an outperformer, or an underperform, or whatever. Mm. There are still a lot of fund managers, even uh, like a lot on the buy side, that use broker research as their only form of modeling. Of course. Uh, yeah. Mm. Um, so I don't think a lot of people know that in in the who, who aren't familiar with the intricacies of the industry, but a lot of that is going on every day with some of the biggest funds in Australia and indeed globally. How about if we just come back to your journey um, in the 90s? I believe you you flew the coop, you left Australia and you're overseas working. What were you doing overseas? So I started doing Australian institutional equity sales into the large UK 
pension funds, etc. Very overbroked market. Too many, dare I say, blokes had been doing it for a long time. Um, and I actually replaced a woman on the desk of what was Macintosh Hanson Hawkevet. It was a very famous firm at the time. And as it had, as luck would have it, I was headhunted to work at Bearings on Bearings Australian desk that when then became Bearings Asian desk. And it's a long story why I moved. And I started doing um, smaller. Asian markets, Indonesia, Philippines, and Thailand uh, in about 19, end of 91. Uh, biggest boom ever. Like, you know, the world could not get enough of emerging markets. That when emerging markets absolutely ruled. And um, we were basically, we used to charge 1% commission. Can you believe it? <laughs> On a trade. <laughs> And well, luckily, because in the turnover in those small markets wasn't that large, but nevertheless, you can't imagine such brokerage commissions now. And there were two firms that basically dominated in Indonesia and the Philippines. Uh, I was one of the salespeople at Bearings, and then there was a company called Flemings, which became JP Morgan. And we basically had that sewn up until Bearings went bust, and then we had uh, the Asian currency crisis and that was Usta Luego emerging markets for mm. a very long time after that. So can you just flesh this out a bit for people that aren't familiar with an institutional sales role? So you would be speaking to pension funds, trying to, you know, get trades done or sell research. Like what, would, what, would, what would you actually do day to day? So you'd usually get into the office between 7, 7.30 in the morning. You'd have a rundown call from the office out of Asia this applied to the whole desk who did Hong Kong, Korea, Taiwan, Japan. Bearings was a very large um, player, second, you know, joint head to Flemings across all global emerging markets. And uh, you would basically, the fund managers, um, the largest in the world, Schroeder's was one of my largest clients. They were one of the largest emerging market funds. And their clients were behind, so they could be pension funds, they could be unit trust money, they could be all different types of money. There was Hermes, which was the post office, M&G, um, Henderson's, you think uh, uh, Bailey Gifford people might have heard of, all the Scots, the canny Scots, uh, Scottish clients, um, and then all the European clients. And so basically they um, weren't really interested in Australia, funnily enough. That was a, Australia's like 1%, 2% of the market. They all wanted emerging markets, so it was the place to be. Japan by this stage had, had its, its mm. bubble pop. Um, so we were flavor of the month. So we would basically get on the phones. You'd have to ring clients. Some of them were incredibly rude. Some of them would make you call for weeks on end and they would literally, you'd have to speak to a voice message. They wouldn't even pick up the phone and eventually you'd get an order. But with good clients, you had a great relationship and we would usually go out to Asia at least once a year with the good clients and we'd do company visits um, for all the companies that they invested in, in mm -hmm. Indonesia, Philippines, Thailand, and then the, my colleagues did the other markets. Mm -hmm. So in the lead up to the GFC, were you in London? No, I was in Sydney. You were back in Sydney. Okay. Yeah. So a lot of people that come on the show um, kind of, it's like this distinct pattern for a lot of investors where not all of them, but a lot of them, where they become... You know, they master their skill, they might become a fund manager for a few years, maybe a bit longer, or a really good analyst, earn a very good wage, then decide to become a private investor, invest their own money. Mm. Um, 
But uh, at this time, a lot of people tend to have this kind of light bulb moment where they're like, I just, it's actually pretty scary stepping off and becoming a full-time <laughs> private investor um, from a financial perspective, because all of a sudden the taps turned off, right? Mm. Um, why did you decide to become a private investor? And I guess, like, wh- what, we, what was your priority at that stage of your life? So... For various reasons, I, I, I turned down some really big job offers and I did do a stint in wealth management for UBS, which was really interesting. So I learned a whole different side of the business um, and it was a bit of a schmozzle. So I didn't stay there and I had my son, got divorced, moved home and I had to make a really big decision. I either go back into the industry in Australia and uh, have, I've, been, I've been away now for 13 years so it was pretty much, it could have been like a who are you moment mm-hmm. because the industry changes so much. And also it is a an ageist industry. So even though I was quite young then, I still was coming in at a stage when there would be 25-year-old guys or girls that I'd probably be knocking up against and they would be developing new relationships. And I was, A, hesitant towards going back into Australian broking because after you've done global, it's a very small pond. It was very overbroked. It um, had lost a lot of the, the appeal in terms of you really had to work very long hours. And I might have earned a lot of money, but I wouldn't see my son. So I made a conscious decision to forgo fabulous holidays, you know, all that stuff that you had when I was making lots of money and raise my son. And I let people manage my money up to a point. And that was when just in the run up to the GFC that I said, oh, enough is enough. Because I called the GFC in 2007 and had numerous. It's not to disparage the investment manager because that's their mandate to invest, but I wanted to take my money out. And we had a bit of an argument and I ended up just yanking all the money out and saying, this is it. I'm going to do it myself. I know myself better. I can lose my own money. I don't have to pay somebody else to do that. (laughs) so how did you so tell me about that you said that you could see it kind of coming what what gave you that idea it it was a funny time because I was actually doing a whole lot of other different stuff (laughs) like working on climate change awareness Yeah, because you're doing ESG stuff at the time weren't you yeah and I remember going to the AGM of perpetual and I own perpetual stocks and I had a real problem about them being so supportive of the Guns pulp mill. Yeah, right. And Guns was a terrible company, not only for what they did to the forest, but it's basically a really ranked company. I mean, it wasn't profitable. It only survived off um, all the government subsidies for the forests. And, um, of course, I was with Stephen Main, one of the big loudmouths standing there in the AGM, questioning them. But at the same time, I heard about all this exposure that they had to CDOs over in America. And by this stage, it's all starting to rumble to the surface. What's going on with all those repackaged mortgage loans, et cetera? And I'm going, oh, my gosh, what are they doing with that stuff? And I remember going back to the guy who's managing my money and I said, can you sell Perpetual now? I basically said it's a pile of poo, excuse me. <laughs> and um, I think I sold pretty much at the top of that share price and it still never got back there again. So I think there were warning signs that the markets were really something wasn't quite right. And I guess it, it, nobody at the, at the time realised the extent to which the leverage in the system has just got so large. Mm. 
Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I'm just looking at the share price chart now, Danny, and it is perpetual is a long way from where it was in 27, uh, 2007. Um, it was about $80 mm. a share at the time, and now mm. it's 39 So, yeah. 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 And that's, it's a really good point because I can give you a number of shares, like Origin I sold, AGL I sold, not always for clear-cut reasons, but it's a really good point for investors because a lot of people say you just sit and forget mm. if you're investing. And, yes, you can, but you really have to make sure that you're in the right companies when you do the set and forget because people forget how many so-called great names I mean, AMP is the classic one that is rolled out time and time again. It's the worn-out trope, isn't it? Mm. Um, even Telstra, and I'm not saying all your younger investors have been in these stocks, but there will be other cases of stocks that are currently super hot now that may not exist in five or even ten years down the track. I was going to ask you actually before, you said companies like James Hardy, Borrell, CSR, were you are you today right now? Are you surprised that those businesses stood the test of time, or are you, when you think about it now, um, and you look back on it, knowing what you know about investing in quality businesses now, is it less surprising? I think you've got to look at every business separately, and mm. we've had a massive building boom, haven't we, in Australia? Yeah. <laughs> so. You know, our economy has been built on two things, homes and holes. <laughs> so hopefully the building materials companies are going to survive. Having said that, uh, there's a stark difference. I haven't looked at CSR because that's got other exposure in there. But uh, Boral for a long time has been a crap investment. Absolutely terrible. They've had that disaster going over, over into the US. I think the fly ash business, they bought it at the wrong price. Um, James Hardy's been a different story. So businesses can survive, but again, you've got to go back to understanding the nature of the business. And clearly building materials products have had longevity in most countries around the world because we have over this period of the last four decades had a macro environment that's been supportive of new housing, you know, demographic growth, et cetera. Mm. Um Let's fast forward a bit then to today um, or just a couple of years ago and up until today, you decided that you wanted to write a book. Mm. Where did that come from? Apparently a friend said, I've always wanted to write a book. So there's a frustrated artist and author in here. <laughs> <laughs> and it goes to my point that I think you've actually to, to be an investor, um, being creative is not a bad thing. Because it allows you to think outside of the box. It allows you to have that imagination to dream the big dream or see a company that doesn't typically fit into the paradigm of where everything else has been. And I write in the second book, you have to know your own um, biases, unconscious, whatever. I know my bias. I'm a very progressive person. I'm always the one that kind of wants to go to the, the new business, the progressive business, and therefore I have to just keep myself a little bit in check because sometimes I am that far ahead of the curve that I miss it. <laughs> you, um, when you decided to write Shareplicity, um, it was the basically the start of the, the COVID kind of crash, mm. if you like, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. So how did, how did writing a book about investing, you know, fair during that time because we spoke previously and it sounds like it did really well 
And and that kind of, I guess it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me because one part of me is like, I don't know, I've heard a lot of people anecdotally not reading as much, but then I hear a lot of people having time to spare. So they yeah. go and read. So yeah. um, I guess maybe if we just backtrack, what is actually, what is Shareplicity, the two books now, what are you trying to teach? What are you trying to tell people? Ideally, you're telling them stories <laughs> to keep them engaged rather than a very prescriptive way of investing because I find that really boring. I don't know how you, you find it. Like, you know, this is, this is how you value a company. This is the parameters under which you buy it, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess I've tried to inject a sense of if you read the if people read the first two chapters you'll get a really good taste of how the books the flavor works and it's trying to inject the concept that a share is purely representative of an underlying company and an underlying company is a complex ecosystem of people humanity and they are working together to achieve financial outcomes that are beneficial not only to themselves but to their stakeholders. Where investors get really confused is this whole concept of the share price representing the company, Mm. okay? The share price can and cannot represent the company sometimes. As you well know, Owen, a share price can be guided by so many different factors, algorithms, traders, macro stories, all the news but it doesn't always reflect the underlying company. So investors have to separate the two and understand what makes up the company. And within that, you then have the parameters of how you assess the company, like its strengths, its weaknesses, its financial strengths, and how you value the company. And then you have to do the next thing is deciding which narrative that company is actually sitting in. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah. So at the moment, we've had for the last 18 months, this huge narrative between growth and value, growth and value, growth and value. I mean, it's kind of a bit silly because a value cyclical stock can be in a growth phase. And that's what we've seen in the V-shaped recovery, particularly in the US. Mm. So it's it, you just have to be really care, careful with these narratives sometimes because they can be misleading. And that's what I'm trying to, particularly in the second book, I do a lot more deeper dive into that. How do you, how do you um, look at a, a secular growth story? How do you value it? What are the measurements that you would use? Or how do you compare between them? Like which stage of the cycle or the growth cycle of this company is over the longer term? Like, for example, if everybody it's said to you that Apple, micro, Apple Google, and Amazon are going to grow their quarter year on year quarterly revenues by 60% when they're trillion dollar companies, what would you have said to me? That's pretty crazy. Correct. So they're classic cases in point of how if you are sticking to a narrative or a traditional valuation method, which is the larger the company gets, the harder it is to grow its revenues. Well, you have these massive, as I call them, the trillion dollar giants that are actually defying that at the moment. Of course, their revenue growth is going to slow. So it really comes down to um, how to how to say, like, what type of investor am I? Do I like buying cyclical stocks that are bombed out, value stocks? So one that's even invested in all its manufacturing equipment and, you know, you have the uppick in the commodity prices and the uppick in the volumes and you've got operating leverage and all the profits drop to the bottom line and then you take those fabulous big dividends away. Mm. 
Or am I going to look at more a secular growth story um, where I'm saying that I think a company like Tesla has the potential to completely disrupt the whole energy slash transportation sectors across the globe and that's a secular trend I want to ride at some point in time. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what I try and pick apart in these books. The first book was very much um, to help people understand what drives great companies. Like why do you get company like a, a James Hardy that can keep on keeping on versus another one that disappears by the wayside? How does disruption work? Um and how to put portfolios together for people. The second book is taking the next leg um, to say, look, you've got all these opportunities over in the US, which on a risk-adjusted basis are not that risky to make really good money. Mm. Interesting. Um, When you think about quality, so business quality, Mm -hmm. how do you define it? Yep. It's really interesting because I don't know if you have owned, but I've worked for really good companies and I've worked for really bad companies. And you know when you work for a really good company. Mm. And I've worked for two great companies and my experience at Bearings was amazing. Um, Here you have a guy who in the 1990s had an institutional sales desk in London. He pretty, or if you looked across 300 people across the room, pretty much we had a representation of not only every country from across the globe in terms of um, where they came from, but we had uh, a very equal balance between men and women. And it was um, very transparent until we went bust. And then obviously the transparency disappeared. (laughs) But it was a very, it was, it, was, it was great communication. There wasn't bullying from the upper management. It, that started a little bit later when they brought in some big wigs. But I, I think to understand what a great company is, you have to have worked for one. And we can list the, the things that come up, such as diversity, such as the ability to keep on increasing your investment in research and development or investing for the future, the ability for them to uh, grow their cash flows sufficiently to grow their dividends over time. And if they're not going to do that, to invest to grow the company over time. Um, mitigating the the negative externalities of the company so there aren't any nasty frights in terms of um, the BHP disaster over in Brazil or the the Royal Royal Bank Commission inquiry into bad deeds. So there's lots of things that play into what makes a great company, but ultimately a great company is a great culture with great leaders at the top, Mm. and they're very few. How do you... so? Do you have maybe an example for our listeners that might illustrate a company that does have, um, like a public company, um, any that you've come across recently perhaps that you think, oh, this is an interesting business with a great culture and a, a great team? Yeah, I, I did some case studies in the first book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the contrast between CSL and Boeing is a really good example. Boeing was destroyed when the McDonnell Douglas kind of did a reverse takeover of the company. Mm-hmm. And we're still seeing the problems that are persisting there now. CSL, okay, they've had problems because of plasma collection in the last year because of the pandemic. But you can actually listen to their shareholder calls 
and literally write down all the points that typify a great company, diversity in the board, diversity in the workforce, commitment to R&D, um, you, commitment to trying to improve their products, et cetera, and the fact that they have consistently grown their earnings over a period of time. So they're two stark contrasts in terms of um, two big names. I think that um, you see it in the banking sector here in Australia where you've got the leading bank, Commonwealth Bank, which is very trying to be as proactive in reacting to the technical disruption that is coming their way with the fintechs. And mm. you've seen them announce that they're reducing their, their costs on their buy now, pay later with Klarna. So they're very much at the front end of the curve. And when you look at compare the, the full banks in Australia, the big banks, you'll see a huge disparity in performance between Commonwealth Bank, which still has its faults, don't get mm. me wrong, it's not perfect, but it has obviously those factors that are driving it being a better company than the other ones. And you've just got to look at poor old Westpac. I mean, it trips over itself every day, doesn't it? There's another announcement about another investigation, another cost, another this, another that. And so they keep on hiving off another asset to try and pop up the prop up the earnings. Mm. So again, it's 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 listen. I find listening to the CEOs or the management. And it, it becomes sometimes um, one's own observation. Like, are they trying to pull the wool over my eyes or is there a transparency there with the company that makes it work? So a classic example was um, in the 80s when I was an analyst, two stories really quickly. Goodman, Field and Wattie were buying ranks over McDougall, big bakery over in the UK. And they're all bullish on it, et cetera. In this case, I crunched the numbers and basically said, this ain't going to work. And I said, you know, they're geared to the eyeballs, which I was then quoted in the Asian Wall Street Journal, which they didn't much appreciate. So I got the <laughs> phone call the next day. But there was a company that was so diametrically opposed to the company Goodman Group, which ironically, that is the son of Goodman from Goodman Field of Wattie. Now, he has created a property behemoth, behemoth mm -hmm. that has done an incredible job that seems to have a quality that that other company never really made it. And whether or not it's, it's, it's bad strategic decisions, whether it's buying poor assets, so you overpay for an asset that you can never, ever get the returns on. And the other thing is, is if you do like listen to a CEO, I remember seeing one, an entrepreneur who shall remain nameless because he's very well known. And I'm at this company visit and he's yabbering away. Oh, I came back from there and somebody said to me, so how was that visit? What did, you know, a great company. And I said, I didn't understand a word of what he was saying. And I learned very quickly on that if I didn't understand what they were saying, normally some alarm bells start going off. Mm. Now, clearly, in the technology era that we're in or in like biotechnology or understanding certain um, aspects of enterprise software, sure, I might have some problems there because I'm just not equipped to understand biotechs properly. properly. Therefore, I'm very careful about if I invest in them because I'm not a chemist. I don't mm. have that much of a scientific background. But if you really don't understand what the CEO is saying, what the proposition is, no matter how good the story is, like the story, because you often hear about the great story mm. stocks, then you have to just be alert <laughs> and possibly mm. alarmed. Mm. I think it's uh, Judge Judy that, uh, you know, the, 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 I don't know if it's a fic fictitious judge during the day, but she said if it doesn't make sense, um, 
it's a lie. <laughs> so, Correct. Yeah, yeah, basically. It's yeah. a really interesting one. Yeah. And I think that's a, a healthy dose of skepticism is required to be a good investor and a good analyst because, um, you know, sometimes, oftentimes, actually, it's what they don't say that is what you need to pay attention to, not what they're saying. Um, how about in terms of using a checklist or even some sort of um, structured investment process that you follow to find your own investment ideas when you're doing your private investing? Do you, do you use anything of the sort? Yep. Um, it's very much, it's like muscle memory now, which means it's always harder to articulate because I've been doing it for so long. So hmm. let's say a name comes across Twitter, which it did today. I go, oh, okay, I'm going to go and have a look at that. So what I do is, um, and I haven't finished it on this company, what I will do is I um, I use external sources. So in this case, it was a US stock. So I'll use rather than Google or Yahoo Finance, I use all the metrics that are sitting on CNBC. So I go pretty much, I start to do size of the company in terms of market cap, mm-hmm. longevity of the company, how long it's been listed for, is it a recent IPO, is it out of a SPAC, is it, you know, has it been around for a while? I go to its finances, have a look at all the quarterly results profit growth, revenue growth, or lack thereof. Um, Look at the level of gearing. Again, I kind of use Bloomberg because they provide the snapshots. Mm -hmm. I have a read about what the company does. And if it's starting to tick all the boxes, like the numbers look like they're going in the right direction. So if you're looking at the chart left to right, it's going up. Um, It's not too overly geared. It is if it's a growth company, the losses are decreasing rather than increasing and you're still getting the revenue growth. And then I start to take a deeper dive and then I'll go and have a look. If I don't understand the company, I'll go and have a look at it online if I can. If I can't do that, I was looking at Carvana the other day and you can't access the website here in Australia. So I just did some Googling and found out this guy just showing us how the whole Carvana process worked in the US. Great software, incredible car dispensary system, et cetera. And so it really is a case of seeking out what one perceives, hopefully, as being good quality information. And once I've done all the checklists, I then look at the chart and look at the valuations and make a determination. Yes, that's something I can invest in at the moment. No, it's too expensive. I'll come back to that later. How do you you find most of your investment ideas? You said this one came through Twitter. How do you find, and this is relevant to to the latest book, how do you, if you're wanting to invest in the US and you want to find ideas to start researching, where should people go and where do you go? Yeah, I just do a lot of I do a lot of listening and a lot of reading. So I do follow specific people um, on Twitter, but you've got to be a bit careful because it's a bit of a minefield out there and you've got to understand what parameters they come with. Are they traders? Are they value? Are they growth, et cetera? I do look at CNBC. A lot of people are really critical of it. Um, but I've found over time it's a good way of building up my watch list. So I have these watch lists. And um, I also kind of have built my US portfolio. So I have what's called kind of a backbone of the portfolio. And it's, it's, it's important to understand that every portfolio will depend on your age, okay, and your earnings and all these other factors, right? So I'm at a stage with my self-managed super fund, which is broadly spit sort of 50-50 US-Australia, not quite, where I need capital preservation and growth, okay? So I'm always going to have a different slant to somebody like my son who's at the cusp of having an earnings career takeoff, hopefully, 
and has money continuing to come in. So I guess when I say you have a backbone of ETFs, that's kind of like a core position. And then you start to add your stocks to add higher performance, which I call the ribs. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, there's only so much, so many stocks a portfolio can hold. Mm. How many stocks are in, a, in your portfolio typically? Sometimes too many. <laughs> <laughs> See, one of the reasons, I'll put it this way, I'm trying to, I try, have about 5% for each big holding and then it goes down to about 3%. Yeah, so right. the point is, is I get, I think Tesla's above five. Um, what else in Australia? It's, no, the others probably aren't. Um, only because I get uncomfortable because it goes back to that thing of risk adjusted for me at my stage in my life. Mm. Yeah, fair enough. How does, um, one thing that we haven't talked about, but I, I saw it when I was doing some research on you is ESG, uh, environmental, social and governance factors. How does that feed into your investment process and your overall philosophy? I think increasingly you're going to find that ESG metrics are included by most fund managers. If you want to have a look what's happening, check out BlackRock's Aladdin project. Okay, it's really amazing because Larry Fink, as um, Tim Buckley from IEFA said, has drunk the Kool-Aid when it comes to climate change and decarbonisation. Okay, so... He has created this incredible software platform for all institutional investors across the globe to help them analyse their companies according to ESG metrics. And it's very clear that although it's still an emerging um, uh, interface or uh, way of looking at companies, that the ESG portfolios are outperforming the other ones and the point is is that if you have a company that creates an echo chamber of management okay a whole group of people that all think the same way all look the same you're going to try and expect that company to do something different well it's not going to do it so when you look at ESG it's again diversity of boards it's um, secure supply chains not using slave labor how they're going to be dealing with their carbon emissions um, how they're actually going to be getting to net zero all of these things which I think in Australia has become quite politicized but you've only got to look at the amount of money and the that is going into some of these so-called ethical funds and ESG funds and also noting how many major superannuation pension funds over in the US, CalPERS, all the big ones, BlackRock, they are like, this is the way that we are going to be making money. So I would suggest that everybody starts to, you can even have a look at like the MSCI, um, low carbon indexes, et cetera. They're the ones that are starting to shift out. So it all becomes a conversation around with so much change in the world, do you want to hold assets that are going to be potentially redundant going forward in the future, just as one example. Mm. In the um, in the book, um, you talk about ETFs quite a bit. I'm talking about the first book here. Um, talk about ETFs quite a bit. Um, and I know it's a topic that gets brought up in many discussions, uh, particularly amongst investors who are looking to learn. Um, yep. ETFs are very popular. Mm-hmm. You see ETFs playing a bigger role in the future of investing? Without a doubt. They're growing yeah. like weeds. 
Yeah. You only have to look at the uh, that uh, flagship financial paper in Australia, and I think it was on Monday. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm reading these articles online, and then my fiance came out with a hard copy. I said, is there a big advertorial on ETFs in it? Sure, and lo and behold, the thing comes out. Look, look. At the end of the day, ETFs are growing rapidly. Um, they have had inflows in the first half of this year that exceed the whole of last year in the mm. US. It's growing rapidly in Australia, whether we like it or not. That is the way the industry is going. And um, I always say if you can't pick a winner in a secular growth sector, like if you can't pick a winner in cannabis, gaming, online gaming or um, lithium, an ETF is an effective product. And if anybody says, oh, that's rubbish, well, I bought an ETF, lithium ETF, um, in the sell-off, I think, around February or March. I had a look the other day. It's up 48%. Mm. So without really doing too much work, um, you can make money. What I do in the second book is do a much bigger explanation about how ETFs may be distorting share prices, okay, Mm. what they're Mm. doing to the actively managed industry, And to remind people, ETFs, because they're always sold as, oh, well, you're not going to get anything on your bank deposit, so just buy an ETF. An ETF is not a bank deposit. (laughs) It is a complex financial instrument. And people need to understand what they're scooping up, the, the ETF being the wrapper, what all the underlying stocks are in there and what you are trying to achieve by actually buying them. So I, I talk a lot about more about that in the second book. And the reason why I talk about ETFs is because they're literally being pumped out to the punters day in and day out as kind of the go-to product to make, to invest for the future. Mm. And that's fine as long as you know what you're doing, but they're not risk-free. Mm. Do you think they, um, how do you think it will change, I guess, the mix in terms of, you know, historically managed funds, unlisted funds and funds for a platform are the way to get exposure to some investment classes. Do you see ETFs democratising that and do you think more active funds will start to become kind of like ETF first? Totally. It's already happening. Yeah. That's a a complete no-brainer. You've seen it. Kathy would change the paradigm there with her active ETFs and her total transparent um, you know, or, or, or like open source research, etc. And um, Ross Gerber from Gerber Kawasaki, who reviewed the book in the US, mm. he runs just over two billion out of Los Angeles. Very progressive investor. He's just launched one called Gerber Kawasaki, which is about nine secular themes that he invests in. Active ETF. You've seen Magellan do it. I think it's, you know, it's going to happen. The only way you could justify closed-end, um, high-cost funds like Michael Frazis's product is if you have extremely good returns. Mm. So mm. you've got to have take a lot of risk and great, great returns to justify the higher costs of non-ETF products, even mm. as some of the ACT ETFs get a little bit expensive. Yeah. But um, I think that's a no-brainer. I mean, you saw the pressure on the costs with stockbroking years ago and, of course, the fund manager is in the line of fire as well. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, here's a kind of a, a softball question for you, Some something that's a bit of fun to answer, which is um, what's the best investment you've made ever? Well, investing in myself, Owen. Of course. That's a good <laughs> 
That's always the right answer, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> never stop reading. Never stop learning. Have an open mind. <laughs> um, no, the best. Oh, look, the best investment was I, I saved like an apps. I, I had a philosophy when I knew I was earning great money and I uh, used uh, my bonuses to buy London property. I was lucky enough to get in on a, a, a property crash oh. and I geared it up to the eyeballs. I had a little bit of savings and I went to Barclays and I said, will you lend me 90%? And they went, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, that's what I did. So basically I, I was very fortunate and I think it's very hard to tell younger people because I grew up at a time where we were really lucky Okay, really, really lucky. We made big money for a short amount of time. Some people saved it, some people didn't. I was very, very studious about saying, you know, bulk of the bonus, whack, that goes into property or it goes into shares or it goes into a combination, one treat, but you've got to save for the future. And that's kind of what set me up. So you. But I've been fortunate. I've been fortunate because asset markets. Have, have gone that direction. And that's, mm. you know, been to the detriment of younger people as well. And when you talk about the book, the launch last year, and why all these younger investors have come in, I think they've come in because there's kind of this realisation like property is really crazy expensive and it's hard to get on the ladder. But yet these share markets, they're able to give, grow my savings. And it's kind of one of those moments in time where you get a confluence of factors that nobody even imagined. And I was reading a report by Charles Schwab. So he created what they have called a demographic of generation investor in the US, which represents 15% of all the retail investors, are these new investors, predominantly um, millennials, but also tipping down to my son's generation, the Gen Zs. Mm. And the reason why I think they've come in is they don't have the PTSD of older people, um, my generation and older of the GFC, because you lost 50% of your money. In some cases, it's like the perpetual example, it never recovered. Younger investors are saying, wow, we've got these cheaper platforms, lower cost. There are all these great companies. It's almost like, don't know where to start. There's too many great ones to go for. <laughs> and again, that's kind of I think, symbolic of the period of time that we are in, which is a discuss in the book of a great period of change. Mm -hmm. It's like going back to the roaring 20s, potentially, or the railroads. All this change is happening and it's going to provide amazing investment opportunities for people. Mm. Well, I love that optimism and I, I, I really do. It's refreshing. In a world of finance, you don't often get a lot of optimism, so there's something to look forward to. Um, how about then, let's just switch firmly uh, to the to the pessimistic angle, what's the what's the worst investment you've ever made? Well, maybe you could turn this one optimistic as well. Lessons learned from it, maybe. Uh, what's the worst investment? I said I said um, on a previous podcast today, the worst investment is not learning from your mistakes. Keep doing the same thing and expecting a different outcome. That's so, insanity. <laughs> yes. So. Let's go back to hip, groovy London in the late 1990s when people were having internet parties or internet get-togethers and everyone was discussing what great, you know, e-commerce platform they were going to produce. I invested in a nanotechnology company out of the US, Venture Capital. Um, <clears throat> great technology was being done with MIT and it was basically to accelerate the speed of information transfer down the internet. Anyway, I got in one of the earlier tranches, not the first, 
doubled my money. They came around for another bite of the cherry and they actually wanted to buy my shares, completely unlisted. It's very early stages. And they're like, the Rockefellers want to buy your, you know, they're, they're in the big, the big family offices in America want to buy it. And I said, I'm not going to be a trader. I'm not going to be a trader. I'm going to hold this one for the longer term. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the owner decided because everybody thought it was such a great company that he'd bankrupt the company and strip out the technology. <laughs> so we all lost our money. Luckily, it wasn't too much. I mean, it's a bit annoying looking in retrospect. So you'd think I'd learn my lesson about unlisted vehicles. You'd think. You'd think I'd go, mm, possibly a bit risky. I possibly don't have enough capital to be a proper venture capitalist to invest across 50 companies mm-hmm. and maybe one or two of them turn into Afterpay or Atlassian. No, no, no. I go and do it again somewhere at the top of the market, I think, at some top of the market where I'm looking at shares going, they're too expensive and there's an ad in the AFR. And I qualified as a wholesale investor. And stupidly, I invested in a whole lot of fabulous sandalwood trees that were meant to be doing carbon credits. And I kissed that one goodbye. So two big mistakes. I do not touch unlisted stuff. I'm not a large enough investor. I like liquidity. I don't like having my money locked away in hedge funds. I learned my lesson when I was with Macquarie. I went into a hedge fund. It took me three months to get out, but luckily I got out before markets crashed. And that's one lesson. Liquidity really matters because if the proverbial hits the fan, at some point you want to be able to at least say, I can sell even if you don't have to. Hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. That's, I think that's, there's so many good lessons there. Um, if people want to buy either of the Shareplicity books, where would they go to find them? Uh, well, they can download the first chapters for free on my website. You can get author signed copies there. Otherwise, uh, Booktopia, mm-hmm. Amazon, all good bookstores. Uh, it's everywhere, basically. So um, just Google Shareplicity 1 or, or Shareplicity, a simple approach to share investing, investing or Shareplicity 2, and it all pops up. Great. Yeah, um, I'll put all the links in the show notes too. I think it's a great read for anyone that just wants to learn more about investing and um, what defines a quality investment. There's so much more than just that in there. So uh, check it out. You're also on Twitter, AU underscore Shareplicity uh, and Instagram too. So if you want to um, say day to Danny, you can do that on Twitter. Um, last question from me is more of a philosophical one. Um, it's a little bit different. Um, what advice, strategies, tools, or kind of lessons are you trying to teach your son about investing? <laughs> I find that's a really interesting question rather than saying, what would you tell yourself? What are you telling your, your child to do? Uh, well, I sent him a report on Fubo because I said to him a while back, oh, he's looking for stocks in America. And I said, have a look at Fubo. And he goes, oh, okay, I'll buy some of that. He didn't sell it after he made 40%. Instead, he held on to it, which is the right thing to do because if you look in the aftermarket, I sent him a report from a great analyst called Beth Kindig. If anybody mm. wants to learn about US tech stocks, Beth is amazing, free newsletter. And um, I sent it to him and he goes, is it bullish or bearish? I said, darling, you have to read the report yourself. So really <laughs> uh, we had this conversation pre this, um, you know, interview chat. I said to him, do you know your weightings in your stocks? And he goes, mm, no, I'm going to do that. So he's just done his weightings and he was a little bit surprised that, um, Two stocks, uh, I think 60% of his US weighting. So it's got to work a little bit on his risk management. But basically, he comes to me and says, um, 
what do you think of this? And I go, yeah or no, or I say to him because he's younger, what do you guys think of this? Um, But basically he did a very deep dive on a company called STEM in the US, okay? It's out of a SPAC and it's involved in um, batteries and software for smart energy systems and grids. He's done that all himself. He's doing finance. He does all his analytics and his mates too. So really for him, he's just learning things like, what trading platforms are good, what's the counterparty risk, okay, when you go onto specific platforms um, because if you invest in the US, you don't actually own the shares. They're held by a custodian, so everybody needs to remember that part. Um, he's learning things about uh, when to take profits, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so my thing to him is, like, you've got to do your own research, but after you've done that, happy to have a chat. Mm, that's a good qualifier. I like it. Uh, Danielle, thanks for taking some time to chat with me on the program. I really appreciate it. No problem, Owen. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it.